Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 2, pages 115 through 238. Okay, so this week uh, we're undertaking uh, the difficult task of dealing with the question of uh, money. And it's a very, very long piece. So I apologize for uh, uh, putting that all in front of you and suggesting you should uh, try and go over all of it. Uh, But part of the reason for that is that this section on money has a very uh, peculiar uh, position, if you like, in, in Marx's work. Uh, it's uh, unlike what we were dealing with last week, which was kind of Marx laying out some settled ideas that he had. Uh, This is a voyage of discovery. It uh, goes in all sorts of different directions, Uh, circles back on itself at various points. At one point, he accuses himself of being an idealist and says he has to change his mode of presentation. it's too close to Hegel. Uh, and uh, the other thing that's rather odd about it is that his starting point is very different from Marx's normal practice. Uh, Marx's normal practice when he's looking at a theoretical problem is to start with uh, some material uh, circumstances, uh, develop what he calls concrete abstractions, uh, and then on the basis of that start to articulate uh, a theoretical argument. Uh, But here he has a different starting point, uh, which is uh, an argument he's having with uh, other socialists, particularly Proudhon. And uh, this means that really he starts in the realm of ideas, which explains why he then criticizes himself a bit further on for being too idealist. Uh, the Proudhon uh, argument uh, is located in relationship to the general diagram that we laid out here last week. And what we're looking at is this point down in the bottom there, which is money capital. And what Marx is going to do is to look at the money moment and try to unravel what that money moment is all about, uh, but to do it in relationship to all the rest of it so that production, realization, distribution and the like uh, uh, come into the picture at various, uh, various points. But clearly, uh, the money capital occupies a very important strategic position in this whole circulation process. And from Proudhon's standpoint, that strategic position meant that it could be utilized uh, as a 
starting point for constructing uh, an alternative socialist society, and in particular uh, to do so by reorganizing the monetary forms. So Proudhon's monetary theory uh, was going to play a very important role in liberating particularly artisan producers in Paris at the time uh, from the kinds of chains in which they found themselves and the impoverished condition in which they found themselves. And Proudhon's arguments were that you needed to reform the financial system, the banking system, and in particular to try to create free credit uh, and to loosen the money supplies so that uh, the artisans could always have access uh, to monetary resources when, when required. And in particular, this meant liberating the monetary system from the chains of uh, gold and the money commodities. So Proudhon is arguing in those terms and also arguing that the way in which money is set up does not properly reflect uh, the labor uh, which uh, is being uh, utilized in the, in the uh, production of commodities and that therefore a monetary system should be devised which reflected uh, the hours of work, uh, what Marx will call the time chits that can be constructed so that the hours of work would then actually be the monetary form. Uh, and this was the kind of the general uh, idea uh, that uh, the Proudhon uh, people were uh, creating. So this, I think, is interesting to look at in contemporary circumstances. Uh, for example, in the 1990s, there was a lot of interest in local economic trading systems and local monies. Uh, I think the Ithaca dollar still exists and various other things, the Bristol pound and so on. And uh, particularly in 2001, 2002 in Argentina, a vast barter network uh, sprung up with uh, coupons, which was an alternative monetary system to the peso. And uh, in fact, it worked uh, uh, rather well for about two years and managed to uh, find a way to uh, keep the economy going at a time when everything else had pretty much uh, crashed in the crisis of 2001, 2002. Um, and in more recent times, I've lost count of the number of times who people have come to me and said, well, wouldn't it all be solved? all of these issues with uh, the new cyber currencies and uh, Bitcoin and uh, isn't this going to be a big challenge uh, to the capitalist system so that actually you'll find uh, quite a lot of uh, utopian cryptocurrency freaks who will go on organizations like TED and give lectures about how uh, this is going to be the new uh, mode of calculation in society. So actually the arguments that Marx is making here uh, in a way could be directly applied uh, to that whole area. So if you're so kind of uh, excited by the idea, you could go off and, 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 and utilize Marx's arguments to have a good go at all of the uh, cryptocurrency uh, arguments. 
which, by the way, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get around to, 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 to it in a minute. Now, so Marx then starts off with his critique of uh, Darimon, which is a Proudhon uh, a scholar. And, uh, you know, he's, um, I'm not going to go through that, that uh, particular critique, but on, on 122, he starts to uh, rather ironically kind of say, well, these people say uh, that the kind of corporate capital we have around right now would not be there if it hadn't been preceded by uh, the financial structures and so on. So uh, there's, there's a, the imputation of a certain agency uh, to finance. Uh, and Marx is kind of uh, sort of goes through this on 122. Uh, but then in the middle of it, he says, OK, we've here reached the fundamental question, which is no longer related to the point of departure, that is, the critique of the uh, Darimon and all the rest of it. The general question would be this. Can the existing relations of production and the relations of distribution which correspond to them be revolutionized by a change in the instrument of circulation in the organization of circulation? Further question. Can such a transformation of circulation be undertaken without touching the existing relations of production and the social relations which rest on them. If every such transformation of circulation presupposes changes in other conditions of production and social upheavals, they would naturally follow from this the collapse of the doctrine, which proposes tricks of circulation as a way of, on the one hand, avoiding the violent character of these social changes, and on the other, of making these changes appear to be not a presupposition, but a gradual result of the transformations in circulation. In other words, Marx is kind of asking the question, if we change the monetary system at the base of this, is that a way of changing the whole thing? And can you do it in such a way that you really do it peacefully and you don't disrupt and, 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 and all the rest of it? And his answer, of course, to both of these uh, possibilities is, is a resounding no. Of course, you can't imagine doing that. And he then sort of says at the bottom of 122, modern credit institutions were as much an effect as a cause of the concentration of capital, since they only form a moment of the latter and since concentration of wealth is accelerated by a scarcity of circulation, as much as by an increase in the facility of circulation. It should further be examined, and here I think it's important to see that Marx is inserting a caveat into what seemed like a resounding no. That's in 123. Uh, it should further be examined, or rather it would be part of the general question, whether the different civilized forms of money, metallic, paper, credit money, labor money, the last named as the socialist form, can accomplish what is demanded of them without suspending the very relation of production which is expressed in the category money, and whether it is not a self-contradictory demand to wish to get around essential determinants of a relation by means of formal modification. And here's the caveat. Various forms of money may correspond better to social production in various stages. One form may remedy evils 
against which another is powerless. But none of them, as long as they remain forms of money, and as long as money remains the essential relation of production, is capable of overcoming the contradictions inherent in the money relation, and can instead only hope to reproduce these contradictions or one and another form. And then he uses an analogy. One form of wage labor may correct the abuses of another, but no form of wage labor can correct the abuse of wage labor itself. Now, the importance of this argument is to say money is going to have a variety of roles to play in a capitalist system, and different forms of money can play the different roles more or less effectively. Uh, for instance, uh, if you take the blockchain technology, which is part of the revolution of monetary uh, 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 activities in contemporary time, then one of the things the blockchain technology does is to reduce transaction costs. That in fact, Bitcoin and things like that can be actually very efficient and very effective at moving money around the world very fast in a costless way. Uh, before these forms of currency emerged, uh, there were clearing banks. And the role of the clearing banks was to take the money exchanges going on between all of the other banks and then clear them so that at the end of the day, they would say, well, this bank is owed just this amount of money and that bank's owed. Listen. Now, in the old days, the clearing banks actually were windows uh, where people took their money and different banks took their money. And, they, and so the clearing process was rather laborious and rather time-consuming and rather expensive. Then electronic clearing came through and then uh, the Bitcoin kind of stuff and then the, the, the cryptocurrencies came in. And now the major banks have actually set up their own uh, currency, cryptocurrencies and clearing, so they don't need the clearing banks anymore. So the clearing banks have become kind of rather irrelevant. Uh, to the financial system. So these transformations which are occurring in the technology within uh, the financial system uh, uh, and the different forms of money uh, actually do play a very important role in adjusting how fast and how efficient the monetary transfer, uh, transfers can occur. So Marx is not saying that all of this stuff is irrelevant. He's saying it's terribly relevant, but it's relevant only to the point where it's making more efficient how the contradictions of money work. It doesn't eliminate the problems of, of, of how to understand money, but what it does is to say uh, that the functions of, of the money can be more effectively uh, accomplished by these kinds of, of reforms. Um, and, and this... Uh, crops up uh, again uh, on, on page 126 uh, to 127. Uh, and this is on the bottom of 126, he goes back to Daramon and says, you know, what Daramon wanted to do was to abolish the privilege of gold and silver, degrade them to the rank of all other commodities. Then you no longer have the specific evils of gold and silver money or of notes convertible into gold and silver. You abolish all evils. Or better, elevate all commodities to the monopoly position now held by gold and silver. In fact, you know, this idea then comes that all commodities are in fact a form of money. Uh, and Marx often makes little jokes like this. Let the Pope remain, but make everybody a Pope. 
Abolish money by making every commodity money and by equip equipping it with specific attributes of money. The question here arises whether this problem does not already pronounce its own nonsensicality and whether the impossibility of the solution is not already contained in the premises of the question. And here comes one of, the, one of my favorite sort of lines I like to quote from Marx. Frequently, the only possible answer is a critique of the question, and the only solution is to negate the question. This is a very good tactic you need to know. Whenever you get into difficulty, you question the question and negate the question, and you get out of the problem. I mean, so, but I think it's a lovely phrase uh, and a lovely thought that, but also, this frequently is indeed the only way. The real question is, and this comes back to what we've already been talking about, does not the bourgeois system of exchange itself necessitate a specific instrument of exchange? Does it not necessarily create a specific equivalent for all values? One form of this instrument of exchange, or of this equivalent, may be handier, more fitting, may entail fewer inconvenience than another. That's the blockchain technology solution to uh, clearing banks. But the inconveniences which arise from the existence of every specific instrument of exchange, of any specific but general equivalent, must necessarily reproduce themselves in every form, however differently. And this idea then that the monetary system needs to be understood in terms of its uh, dynamics and its, the transformations which uh, are occurring within it, but don't therefore think that somehow or other it, it, it isn't at the same time anchored very much within this system that Marx is, is looking at, which is the whole kind of bourgeois structure uh, of, of, of exchange. Uh, and this then takes him through into uh, further deep into the, the question of exchange. Um, and I'm going to occasionally note these uh, moments when Marx uh, uh, says something which I think is kind of just interesting, that's just on the side, as it were. When on 128, he says, the impact of war is self-evident since economically it is exactly the same as if the nation were to drop a part of its capital into the ocean, which is a nice way to think about military expenditures uh, and, and, and militarization. Now, the issue which was bothering the, uh, the French socialists of this time uh, was something called uh, a, a bullion drain. That is, gold was flowing out of the country. And because gold was flowing out of the country, many of the, uh, meant there was a scarcity of uh, specie within the country, and there were therefore uh, things were becoming difficult within a country. And to some degree, the Proudhonians were kind of saying, this is what underpins the crisis uh, which exists in, in French economy from 1848 to around 1850, 1852. So we're going to look at, so there's a crisis uh, in the monetary system. Marx's argument is the crisis does not arise out of the, the bullion drain, out of the money flowing out of the country. The money flowing out of the country uh, arises out of the crisis. And the crisis is that uh, there's been a harvest failure uh, there's not enough uh, wheat to provide the bread, 
you have to import wheat from Eastern Europe and everywhere, but you have to pay for it. Can you pay for it with exports? If you can't pay for it from exports, you have to use up some of your reserve currency. And so you get the bullion drain, which is, which is to, to, to pay for the wheat to, to compensate for the fact uh, there's been a harvest failure. So this is what Darimon uh, uh, describes and which Marx is, is sort of uh, uh, taking up uh, and, and sort of saying, well, you know, you have to look at uh, what's going on here and what's going on in the money markets and what's going on in the bullion trade and then gold reserves and all those kinds of things is not something that can be kind of looked at as somehow the trigger for the crisis. It's an effect of the crisis. And, and when you put it in those terms, I think you can see what is, what is going on. Um, now, this then leads him on, uh, uh, again, 134, to come back again to some part of the argument that's going on from the Proudhon's quarters, which is uh, that they were very concerned about the instability of prices and, and uh, the rise and fall of prices. And they, they, they wanted to do something uh, to eliminate and eradicate these price movements, which were destabilizing. Uh, and Marx uh, ironically kind of says, the way to do this is abolish prices. And how? By doing away with exchange value. But this problem arises. Exchange corresponds to the bourgeois organization of society. Hence, one last problem to revolutionize bourgeois society economically. It would then have been self-evident from the outset that the evil of bourgeois society is not to be remedied by transforming the banks or by founding a rational money system. Now, this is the position that, that Marx is articulating. Convertibility, that is, convertibility of any paper currency into gold, legal or not, remains a requirement of every kind of money whose title makes it a value system, a value symbol. Now, from here on in, we start to get into a discussion of the relationship between money and value. And there, this is the part where Marx starts to introduce the whole value theory. And the presentation of the value theory in the Grundrisse is incomplete. Uh, and but you can see how he's getting into it and, and why the value theory starts to become very important at this particular uh, uh, moment. Because if money has to be convertible into gold, and gold is, the, if you like, uh, the, the, the value symbol, then there is something about value and, and, and gold which is connected and it has something also to do with the question of prices. And it's here that again Marx starts to run a critique of the idea that you could found money on the basis of labor time. And, and he immediately kind of says, look, yes, labor time has something to do with it, but it's not the absolute hours of labor which are embodied in the creation of a commodity. And he says on 135, what determines value 
is not the amount of labor time incorporated in products, but rather the amount of labor time necessary at a given moment. So it's not the number of hours, it's the number of necessary hours. And as soon as you introduce the question of necessary hours, you're starting to actually talk about an abstraction from all of the individual forms of commodity production. So that the labor time, which is the foundation of the Proudhon time money, the labor time is, in Marx's view, ind you know, in indefensible as uh, and, 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 and it's indefensible for a number of, of very particular reasons. One of the most obvious reasons which he starts to articulate here is the productivity of labor. But if I spend 10 hours on making something and somebody else spends five hours on making the same thing, and if the monetary reward for making that thing is 10 hours versus 5 hours, we have a situation where the same thing has two money values. One, my particular amount of time I put in it, and the other is your particular labor time which you put in it. So this makes for an intolerable situation. And furthermore, when you start to turn this dynamically to the degree that productivity of labor is constantly changing and, and, and rising, it means that a time chip five years ago at a particular level of productivity is something radically different from a time chip right now where the level of productivity is doing it. So the time chip system, says Marx, could only work if you never change your productivity. And since a lot of what capital is about is changing productivity, that means that the time chip is an impossible system uh, to try, try to, to operate. Uh, and, and this is what he really takes up uh, a bit in page 135, 136. Uh, and he talks on 136 about if we, if we use time chits, then we must also presuppose the accumulation of this money as well as contracts, obligations, fixed burdens which are entered into in the form of this money the accumulated chits which constantly appreciate together with the newly issued ones. And thus, on the one hand, the rising productivity of labor would go to the benefit of non-workers, and on the other hand, the previously contracted burdens would keep step with the rising yield of labor. So the time chit and hourly productivity are, are very much uh, connected, and this is what screws the whole possibility up. So this leads him to say, all right, well, my answer to this is at bottom 136. The value of all commodities, labor included, is determined by their cost of production. In other words, by the labor time required to produce them. Their price is this exchange values of theirs expressed in money. The replacement of metal money and of paper or fiat money denominated in metal money by labor money denominated in labor time would therefore equate the real value, exchange value of commodities, with their nominal value or price. Now, value is the average value, and we know that the price is going to fluctuate according to market conditions. 
Price is radically different in Marx's theory from value. What the Proudhon people did was to pretend there was no difference between value and price. Whereas Marx is kind of saying there's a crucial difference. Value is the socially necessary labor time. As that's what he'll say in capital. He doesn't say it in those terms here. It's the social labor time, which is very different from the price, because the price is about supply and demand fluctuating in the market. So it is absolutely crucial for a capitalist system that value and price be very distinct from each other, and that price can yo-yo up and down all over the place, whereas value should be relatively constant. Market value, he says on 137, equates itself with real value by means of its constant oscillations. Price, at the bottom of 137, therefore is distinguished from value, not only as the nominal from the real, not only by way of the denomination in gold and silver, but because the latter appears as the law of the motions which the former runs through. But the two are constantly different and never balance out, or balance only coincidentally and exceptionally. The price of commodity constantly stands above or below the value of the commodity. Now this supply and demand constantly determine the prices of commodities, never balance or only coincidentally. And this is all expressed by a certain quantity of accumulated labor, a certain measure of materialized labor time. The first basic illusion of the time chitters, he likes to call them that, consists in this, that by annulling the nominal difference between the real value and the market value, between exchange value and price, that is by expressing value in units of labor time instead of in a given objectification of labor time, say gold and silver, that in so doing they also remove the real difference and contradiction between price and value. One of Marx's big arguments here is that there's a contradiction between price and value. And that is foundational for understanding the nature of money. Because money rests on that contradiction. But the Proudhon theory eradicates that contradiction. So he says on bottom of 139, the difference between price and value between the commodity measured by the labor time whose product it is and the product of the labor time against which it is exchanged, this difference calls for a third commodity to act as a measure in which the real exchange value of commodities is expressed. Because price is not equal to value, therefore the value determining element, labor time, cannot be the element in which prices are expressed, because labor time would then have to express itself simultaneously as the determining and non-determining element as the equivalent and the non-equivalent of itself. Because labor time as the measure of value exists only as an ideal, it cannot serve as a matter of price comparisons. Here, at the same time, it becomes clear how and why the value relation obtains a separate material existence in the form of money. So money is going to be an expression of value. And as such, it is going to be very different from price. Prices will be set up in monetary terms, but price is not value. 
Considered as values, he says on 141, all commodities are qualitatively equal and differ only quantitatively, hence can be measured against each other and substituted for one another. They are mutually exchangeable, mutually convertible in certain quantitative relations. Value homogenizes all commodities under subsumes, everything is subsumed under the value relation. Value, he says, is their social relation, their economic quality. Proudhon doesn't understand value as a social relation. Then he goes on to say, as value, it is money. But because the commodity, or rather the product or the instrument of production, is different from its value, its existence as value is different from its existence as product. And he then goes through uh, uh, that its property of being of value not only can but must achieve an existence different from its natural one. Why? Because commodities as values are different from one another only quantitatively, therefore each commodity must be qualitatively different from its own value. Its value must therefore have an existence which is qualitatively distinguishable from it. And in actual exchange, this separability must become a real separation. Because the natural distinctness of commodities must come into contradiction with their economic equivalence. Now in capital, he subsumes his arguments here much more crisply. Because what Marx is really talking about is the distinction between use value and exchange value, and between use value, exchange value, and value. He hasn't got to that point here. He doesn't know quite how to do it, but he's, he's prodding around and beginning to talk about it and saying, well, something like this. There has to be a third thing. What is that third thing? Well, the third thing is value. And value is not exchange value. Here, value and exchange value seem to merge into each other. So that's why it gets a little muddly. He sees very clearly the distinction between use value, but he doesn't use that term. He says the natural qualities of the commodity. In capital, he calls that the use values. And the use value is obviously, you know, qualitatively different from one commodity to another. The value is qualitatively equal, but at the same time, quantitatively different. And so this then leads him to reflect a little bit on, on money, and, and he comes up on 142 uh, with the idea of the universal equivalent, which is, plays a very important role in the formulation in capital. Here he doesn't develop it, but what, what he's really sort of saying is, uh, at some point or other, all of the values which exist in society can be reduced to this single dimension, which is the universal equivalent. And that, of course, is going to be uh, an abstraction, but it's a concrete abstraction. That is, it's, a, it's an abstraction which comes from the multiplicity of exchanges which are going on in society. And he uses a couple of examples to illustrate that. Now, 
And 144, he, he starts to uh, look more concretely at actually what's going on with the money form itself. When he starts talking about, again, on 144, about two-thirds down, he said, the commodity must be exchanged against a third thing, which is not in turn itself a particular commodity, but is a symbol of the commodity as commodity, of the commodity's exchange value itself, that is a symbol of value, which thus represents, say, labor time as such, Again, he's not quite got round to making sure he, about talking about socially necessary labor time. Um, such a symbol presupposes general recognition. It can only be a social symbol. Therefore, it is nothing more than a social relation. So value is now being talked about as a social relation. And you can't go much further with the value theory without considering, considering what kind of social relation it is. Uh, in fact, he says, the commodity which is required as a medium of exchange, that is, the money commodity, becomes transformed into money into a symbol, only little by little. As soon as this has happened, it can in turn be replaced by a symbol of itself, it then becomes a conscious sign of exchange value. The process then, and this is top of 145, is simply this. The product becomes a commodity, a mere moment of exchange. The commodity is transformed into exchange value. In order to equate it with itself as an exchange value, it is exchanged for a symbol which represent it, re represents it as exchange value as such. As such a symbolized exchange value, it can then in turn be exchanged in definite relations for every other commodity. Because the product becomes a commodity, and the commodity becomes an exchange value, it obtains at first only in the head a double existence. The doubling in the idea proceeds and must proceed to the point where the commodity appears double in real exchange, as the natural product on one side, the use value, it's as exchange value on the other, i.e. the commodity's exchange value obtains a material existence separate from the commodity. Thus, in the bottom of 145, the exchange value of a product creates money alongside the product. Now, just as it is impossible to suspend the complications and contradictions which arise from the existence of money alongside the particular commodities merely by altering the form of money, although difficulties characteristic of a lower form of money may be avoided by moving to a higher form, Marx again coming back to the idea that the form of the money can change, and you may want to change it because it becomes more efficient. Uh, that, for example, if you only use gold coins uh, for exchange, uh, and uh, you, you want a grain of, of gold to buy a cup of coffee. I mean, this is very inefficient. In fact, it's impossible. So what do you do? You get, you get fiat monies, which, which, which are tied to gold, but which, which say that this is, 
you know, how you can buy a cup of coffee with this, with this particular coin or note or whatever. And he then says, it is impossible to, establish, to abolish money itself as long as exchange value remains a social form of products. It is necessary to see this clearly and to avoid setting impossible tasks. And that's what he's accusing the Proudhon people of doing. And in order to know the limits within which monetary reforms and transformation of the circulation are able to give a new shape to the relations of production and to the social relations which rest on the latter. So again, as I've said earlier, he, he's, he's conceding that, you know, there can be revolutions in the, techno in the technologies of money, which is, which is fine, but the revolution in the technologies of money don't eradicate the contradictions of the monetary form, and the contradictions of that rest on this relationship between value and, and exchange value and, and, and use value. And then on 146, he starts to introduce what I think is some very important features of the monetary form. To the degree that production is shaped in such a way that every producer becomes dependent on the exchange value of his commodity, as the product increasingly becomes an exchange value in reality, and exchange value becomes the immediate object of production, I'm producing commodities for exchange, not for my own use, to the same degree must money relations develop, together with the contradictions imminent in the money relation. In the relation of the product to itself as money. The need for exchange and for the transformation of the product into a pure exchange value progresses in step with the division of labor, i.e. with the increasing social character of production. But as the latter grows, so grows the power of money. Okay, this is Marx saying money just didn't arise like that, it grew as it grew, so it became more powerful. What originally appeared as a means to promote production becomes a relation alien to the producers, i.e. the production of an alienating force. As the producers become more dependent on exchange, exchange appears to become more independent of them. And the gap between the product as product and the product as exchange value appears to widen. Money does not create these antitheses and contradictions. It is rather the development of these contradictions and antitheses which creates the seemingly transcendental power of money. Now what Marx has done here is to start to say money becomes autonomous, it becomes independent. And as it becomes autonomous and independent, so it becomes a transcendental power. And this is a very important insight. And he works with that and the contradictions which are implicit in that move. But again, notice the argument in that section. It's an evolutionary argument. It wasn't as if money came from outside and sort of plonked down on top. Money grew up inside, 
And as it grew up inside, it, it started to take over and dominate that where it was incubated. And this then leads him to sort of say on 147, the next question to confront us is this, are there not contradictions inherent in this relation itself, which are wrapped up in the existence of money alongside commodities? So he now wants to look at the contradictions of the monetary form. And he goes through and there's a list of them. Firstly, that there is a, uh, a double existence. First, there is this double differentiated existence which must develop into a difference and the difference into antitheses and contradiction. The same contradiction between the particular nature of the commodity as product and its general nature as exchange value. This contradiction between natural qualities and its social qualities contains from the beginning the possibility that these two separated forms in which the commodity exists are not convertible into one another. That is, exchange value, which is involved in all commodities, becomes externalized and something in itself. And since it is something in itself, it is liberated, if you like, from the use-value form. And therefore, this then introduces the fact that it is, as he says at the bottom of 147, abandoned to the mercy of external conditions. That is, once it's externalized, then all kinds of things can start to happen to it. The state can start to manage it. Banks can do all kinds of things with it. Private people could do it. In other words, it's something that's inter internal to the commodity structure, which is now externalized and is operating on its uh, own account. And second contradiction on 148, the exchange value of the commodity leads a double existence as a particular commodity, and as money, so does the act of exchange split into two mutually independent acts, exchange of commodities for money, exchange of money for commodities. That is, you move away from barter, which is commodity for commodity, to a situation where it's commodity goes to money, and then money goes to commodity. So it gets split into two actions. And the fact that you go from commodity to money doesn't require that you go from money to commodity. Whereas with barter, the commodity goes for commodity and there's an equivalent, as soon as this separation occurs, you get the possibility of somebody will just hold the money. I have my commodity, I get the money, and I hold the money. <coughs> why would I hold the money? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why I might do that. But there's absolutely no necessity of the equivalent money to commodity to take place. With, and this is the third thing, with the separation of purchase and sale, with the splitting of exchange into two spatially and temporally independent acts, there further emerges another new relation. That is, the merchant can come into the center. You can actually set up 
the possibility of a merchant capitalist operation. So Marx is kind of saying, well, as soon as it's, you go into this CMC configuration, as opposed to the C to C configuration of barter, as soon as you go to CMC, somebody holding the money can start to intervene and mess around. So there's a possibility for a merchant capitalist to set up in that configuration. So what this does is to enter another contradiction. And out of this movement into the CMC situation, it's really split into C to M and then M to C, out of that comes the possibility of crises. And you can see how it comes. Uh, Keynes would have called it the, 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 the liquidity trap. That just because everybody has gone from C to M and they're holding money, doesn't mean that they're all going to go from M to C. And everybody holds money, then there are all those people holding commodities and they can't sell their commodities, and so they're in a crisis. So this also is important. And bottom 149, Marx puts it this way. Money can overcome the difficulties inherent in barter only by generalizing them, making them universal. It is absolutely necessary that forcibly separated elements, which essentially belong together, manifest themselves by way of forcible eruption as a separation of things which belong together in essence. The unity is brought about by force. As soon as the antagonistic split leads to eruptions, the economists point to the essential unity and abstract from the alienation. Their apologetic wisdom consists in forgetting their own definitions at every decisive moment. Now this is a point where Marx starts to get into the discussion of Say's Law, which I mentioned last time. I mean, Say's Law argued that since every purchase was a sale and every sale is a purchase, there can be no general overproduction. And that law held all of economic theory together from Ricardo right up to the 1930s, when Keynes came along and said, that's ridiculous. And in effect, what Keynes did was to do what Marx is doing here, which is to say, you know, in, in, in a difficult period, what would you rather hold, commodities or money? What, what's safer? And, and uh, what happens is if people lack confidence, and this is Keynes' argument, what they do is they hold money. And because they hold money, it means that there's no market for the commodity producers. And if there's no market for the commodity com producers, there's unemployment. And because there's unemployment, nobody has the money to buy the commodity. So, you know, you get a downward spiral. And Marx is pointing to that here as a, as a real possibility. But it's a, in Marx's thing, it's only a possibility here. It's not a necessity. It doesn't automatically happen. And fourthly, just as exchange value in the form of money takes its place as the general commodity alongside all particular commodities, 
So does exchange value as money, therefore at the same time take its place as a particular commodity. Now, money is going to be a universal equivalent. But when you materialize money, you can only do it by, when Marx is writing, going to a particular commodity, like gold. So you're basically saying that the particularity of gold stands in for the universality of all labor everywhere. Well, that, you know, what happens when, you know, suddenly there's a gold rush in California and a mass of gold comes pouring in? Or what happened in the 16th century when the Spanish robbed all of Latin America of its gold and there's a massive amount of gold floods into Europe and so, so, so the particularities of the gold supply uh, create the potentiality for all sorts of problems in this system because you're going to have to assume that gold stands for the universal equivalent, which is, of course, going to lead us to the very interesting question, which we're not going to be able to go into, but you could go into it from this perspective which is what happened when the global monetary system went off the gold standard in 1971. Uh, up until that point, this contradiction between the fact that money was supposed to stand in for the universal uh, commodity production, and universal commodity production had become so huge, and there wasn't that much gold around, then there was an obvious real problem about sort of relating the gold to the uh, to, to the commodities. So you get this stress going on in the 1960s uh, and all sorts of games get played around the gold thing. Um, you know, the United States uh, basically had the, 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 the world money was the dollar and the dollar could be transformed into gold at $35 an ounce. That was a Bretton Woods agreement. Now, foreign governments were encouraged to hold their reserves in dollars uh, because all of the gold was in Fort Knox. But by the time that uh, Goldfinger got round to robbing it in, what was it, 1964 in the great James Bond movie, there wasn't actually much gold left in Fort Knox because de Gaulle, among other things, looked at the situation and said, I either hold dollars, and I see that the dollar is, is you know, and, and it's not going to last at that level in relationship to gold for very long. You either hold dollars or you hold gold. So de Gaulle kind of said, okay, give me my gold out of Fort Knox. I want it, I want it back in Paris. And everybody started to follow suit. So by the time you get to the end of the 1960s, there's hardly any gold left anywhere in Fort Knox. It's all and because you're on a one-sided bet. The one-sided bet was you bet that pretty certainly given the commodity production and given the amount of gold, there's going to have to be a devaluation of the dollar against gold. That's a pretty strong bet. If there was not a devaluation, you still had the gold and it wasn't going to go in the other direction. So it was a one-sided bet which is why everybody ran, ran into gold in the 1960s and depleted the gold. And so in the end, Nixon had to sort of say, OK, forget all that nonsense about $35 an ounce. We just cut the 
the gold supply. We see then, says Marx, 151, that money is a means which becomes an end to realize the exchange value of commodities by separating them from it, to facilitate exchange by splitting it, to overcome the difficulties of the direct exchange of commodities by generalizing them, to make exchange independent of the producers in the same measure as the producers become dependent on exchange. And it's here he says, oh, well, this, I could need to correct the idealist manner of presentation, uh, get away from my uh, Hegelianism and stop talking about the realm of ideas and try to get more concrete about what I'm, what I'm talking about. So this then leads him back in on 153 to, okay, having said he wants to get out of the idealist kind of presentation, he goes back to Darimon and does it all over again, uh, which is to get into the time chits. And so there's a direct critique of the time chit stuff on 153, uh, which is, is, you know, coming back to this, that public credit, bank, etc. The time chit men, of course, regarded as the ultimate product of the series, which even if it corresponds to most of the pure concept of money, appears last in reality. If the preconditions under which the price of commodities, their exchange value are fulfilled and given, balance of demand and supply, balance of production and consumption, and what this amounts to in the last analysis, proportionate production, so-called relations of distribution are themselves relations of production, then the money question becomes entirely secondary. I, I mean, Proudhon wanted to get rid of the money question and, and, and was trying to do it through this time chip sort of stuff. And then uh, there's the discussion of this that then, then follows. And he then goes into some questions of uh, uh, the history of a lot of this uh, on 156 to 157. And there's uh, the beginnings of an argument here, which again is, I think, very important. 156. He says, the dissolution of all products and activities into exchange values presupposes the dissolution of all fixed personal relations of dependence in production as well as the all-sided dependence of the producers on one another. Each individual's production is dependent on the production of all others, and the transformation of his product into the necessaries of his own life is similarly dependent on the consumption of all others. Reciprocal dependence. Now, last week, at the very outset, we started out with kind of saying, something about the individual and that Marx is trying to theorize and the connectivity between the individual and the exchange process and the rise of bourgeois society and the construction of individualism but of a certain kind of individualism which is I think the important thing to do just don't say it constructed individuals and individualism doesn't it constructs a certain kind of individual and a certain kind of individualism. And this is where 
Marx starts to talk about that through the fact that the society is talking about and the rise of the money form and the commodity form is producing a situation of reciprocal dependence. And then he says, the reciprocal and all-sided dependence of individuals who are indifferent to one another forms their social connection. You don't have to care about the person you're exchanging with because you're simply interested in their money. You have a money relation with them, not a personal relation. This social bond, he said, is expressed in exchange value by means of which alone each individual's own activity or his product becomes an activity and a product for him. He must produce a general product, exchange value, or the latter isolated for itself and individualized money. On the other side, the power which each individual exercises over the activity of others or over social wealth exists in him as the owner of exchange values of money. Very interesting thing here. The individual carries his social power as well as his bond with society in his pocket. It's in your wallet. That's your form of social power and that's your social bond with society. The social character of activity as well as the social form of the product and the share of individuals in production here appears as something alien and objective. We haven't really talked about the concept of alienation in the Grundrisse. You don't get it very much in capital. You get it a lot in the, his, in the economic and philosophic manuscripts, very powerful, but it's an idealist kind of conception of alienation, the economic and philosophic manuscripts. Here it's an objective kind of alienation which arises that the share of individuals in production here appears as something alien and objective, confronting the individuals not as their relation to one another, but as their subordination to relations which subsist independently of them and which arise out of the coll collision between mutually indifferent individuals. If you go to capital, of course, this is where Marx talks about fetishism the way in which individuals relate to each other is no longer a social thing. It's a material relation. So we end up with a material relation between people and a social relation between things. Marx doesn't identify the fetish here, but this is, if you like, the beginnings of the argument about the fetishism of commodities and the fetish relations we have. But also, here, he's expressing it in terms of alienation. When he writes out the theory of fetishism in Capital, he doesn't mention alienation. In part, because it's very different from, of course, the economic and philosophic manuscripts, but also in part because I think in Capital he figured the English working class wouldn't understand it. It's a kind of it's a Hegelian concept, and so you know it's hard enough to get around to fetishism and all of that sort of stuff without introducing something like alienation. But here it's clear. And, and here, here is something where, you know, when you take the language of the Grundrisser and you connect it to capital, you start to say, oh, all that stuff on fetishes is about the alienation, and here's a very good description 
of where that alienation is coming from and how it's historically uh, constructed. And that alienation means that the individualism that's being constructed is the individualism of an alienated individual. The individual is alienated, and he does this on 158. When he starts to say, each individual possesses social power in the form of a thing. Rob the thing of this social power, a thing, the money, and you must give it to persons to exercise over persons. Relations of personal dependence, entirely spontaneous at the outset, are the first social forms in which human productive capacity develops, only to a slight extent and at isolated points. Personal independence founded on dependence is the second great form. You'd find it under feudalism, in which a system of general social metabolism of universal relations of all-round needs and universal capacities is formed for the first time. Free individuality, based on the universal development of individuals and on their subordination of their communal social productivity as their social wealth, is the third stage. That's the one we're in. The second stage creates the conditions for the third. Patriarchal as well as ancient conditions, feudal also, thus disintegrate with the development of commerce, of luxury, of money, of exchange value, while modern society arises and grows in the same measure. So this is an argument then that goes on through these pages, and I think it's a very powerful invocation of the consequences of the money economy. And he elaborates this a bit on 159, where he starts to talk about free exchange amongst individuals who are associated on the basis of common appropriation and control of the means of production. And here he comes back to some of the socialist possibilities, because here he's talking about communal possibilities. But again, it's a limited possibility. Nobody, he says on 159, will take this as a ground for believing that a reform of the money market can abolish the foundations of internal or external private trade. But within bourgeois society, the society that rests on exchange value, there arise relations of circulation as well as of production, which are so many minds to explode it a mass of antithetical forms of the social unity, whose antithetical character can never be abolished through quiet metamorphosis. On the other hand, if we did not find concealed in society as it is, the material conditions of production and the corresponding relations of exchange prerequisite for a classless society, then all attempts to explode it would be quixotic. Now, I'm not quite sure what he's driving at there. Except, except to say that, you know, the creation of this individualism and the creation of this social bond, that it can be disruptive. And the disruptions can act to so many minds to explode it. And when they do explode it, 
then that creates the possibility for some alternative. Which raises then the question of how to understand value, how to understand money in relationship to this process of circulation. That is, it is not just because Marx is dissing the Proudhon and Co. doesn't mean that there's nothing that happens in the monetary sphere which is not problematic and which is not incipiently creating always the possibility for crises and through crises the possibility of organizing some alternative. And a lot of that also comes out from the problematic of alienation. That the alienated individualism that is implicit in what Marx is talking about here is one of the serious issues. So on page 162, longest passage, let me read it to you. He starts up by saying, it is an insipid notion to conceive of the objective bond as a spontaneous natural attribute inherent in individuals and inseparable from their nature and in, in antithesis to their conscious knowing and willing. So he wants to go away from the Rousseauian kind of natural basis of all of this. This bond is a product, a historic product, it belongs to a specific phase of development. The alien and independent character in which it presently exists vis-a-vis -vis individuals proves only that the latter are still engaged in the creation of the conditions of their social life and that they have not yet begun on the basis of these conditions to live it. It is the bond natural to individuals within specific and limited relations of production. Universally developed individuals whose social relations, as their own communal relations, are hence also subordinated to their own communal control, are of no product of nature but of history. The degree and universality of the development of wealth, where this individuality becomes possible, supposes production on the basis of exchange values as a prior condition whose universality produces not only the alienation of the individual from himself and from others, but also the universality and comprehensiveness of his relations and capacities. In earlier stages of development, the single individual seems to be developed more fully because he has not yet worked out his relationships in their fullness or erected them as an independent social powers and relations opposite himself. It is as ridiculous to yearn for a return to that original fullness as it is to believe that with this complete emptiness in history, emptiness, history has come to a standstill. The bourgeois viewpoint has never advanced beyond this antithesis between itself and this romantic viewpoint. That is the nostalgia for some supposed lost past the whole romantic movement 
which Marx himself was had partially succumbed to in his earlier writings, and now he's revolting against. Therefore, the latter, that is, the romantic viewpoint, will accompany it as legitimate antithesis up to its blessed end. I find this yeah, very interesting because within bourgeois culture, the whole history of romanticism is precisely about this. I mean, why do people embrace Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth and the whole romantic movement? It was, in fact, you know, anti-industrial, anti-capitalist. But it was anti-industrial and anti-capitalist in a way that didn't threaten capital or industrialism. And this is precisely what Marx is pointing to. He's saying, you know, what's, what's, what's happened with this system is that it has created a, a, situ a situation of this kind. but that it's unstable because it's alienated. And because of the alienation, there's a the constant threat of its disruption. And bottom 163, he starts to talk about this. When we look at social relations which create an undeveloped system of exchange, then it is clear from the outset that the individuals in such a society, although their relations appear to be more personal, enter into connection with one another only as individuals imprisoned within a certain definition, as feudal lord and vassal, landlord and serf, etc., or as members of a caste, or as members of an estate. In the money relation, in the developed system of exchange, and this semblance seduces the Democrats, the ties of personal dependence, of distinctions of blood, education, etc., are in fact exploded, ripped up. At least personal ties all appear as personal relations. And individuals seem independent. This is an independence which is at bottom merely an illusion. And it is more correctly called indifference, free to collide with one another, to engage in, ex, uh, in exchange within this freedom, but they appear thus only for someone who abstracts from the conditions, the conditions of existence within which these individuals enter into contact. And these conditions, in turn, are independent of the individuals, and although created by society, appear as if they were natural conditions, not controllable by individuals. And then he beautiful passage that follows, he talks about these relations, ending up with, I think, the, the key insight. These objective dependency relations also appear in antithesis to those of personal dependence. The objective dependency relation is nothing more than social relations which have become independent and now enter into opposition to the seemingly independent individuals. The reciprocal relations of production, separated from and autonomous of individuals, in such a way that individuals are now ruled by abstractions. 
whereas earlier they depended on one another. I think this is a brilliant insight, lots of ways, that we are ruled by abstractions, not of our own making. We live in a world where those abstractions rule us. We've created a world in which there's alienation and we're ruled by abstractions. Now, this is not something which is unique to Marx. I mean, in a sense, what is, what is Adam Smith's theory of the hidden hand of the market about? He says that all entrepreneurs are ruled by abstractions. That, you know, individuals, entrepreneurs, acting out of their own self-interest, engage in practices, but the market disciplines them in certain ways. And actually, all of economic theory is about the abstractions which rule us, or supposedly is about the abstractions that rule us. So Marx is setting this up. And this does not arise out of nowhere. Marx kind of comments on the next page, he says, money does not arise by convention any more than the state does. It arises out of a process, out of a historical process of the proliferation of exchange relations. And then Marx starts to get into things like, okay, let's say more about money and we get into the next few pages, quite a few uh, uh, discussions of forms of production and form, the forms of money and, and the like. And I can jump over uh, a lot uh, in what follows. And I'm sorry if you spent a lot of time reading it, but it's, it's you know, it's okay, but it's not that profound. So I'm going to jump from about page wherever I was, uh, 165, jump 30 pages to page 196. In 196, Marx comes back to the idea of the totality of the process, the totality of circulation. To have circulation, what is essential is that exchange appears as a process, a fluid whole of purchases and sales. Its first presupposition is the circulation of commodities themselves. Precondition of this is that it produces exchange values, not immediately use values. Appropriation through and by means of divestiture and alienation is a fundamental condition. Circulation as the realization of exchange value implies that my product is a product only as it, far as it is for others. And then we go back to this notion of this and then so much does the totality of the process appear as an objective interrelation which arises spontaneously from nature, arising, it is true, from the mutual influence of conscious individuals on one another but neither located in their consciousness nor subsumed under them as a whole. Their own collisions with one another produce an alien social power standing above them, produce their mutual interaction as a process and a power independent of them. 
Circulation, because of totality of the social process, is also the first form in which the social relation appears as something independent of the individuals. Circulation as the first totality among the economic categories is well suited to bring this to light. Then he comes back to the critique of Say's law. And he says, uh, bottom 198, in circulation, money only realizes prices. The price appears at first as an ideal aspect of the commodity, but the sum of money exchanged for commodity is its realized price, its real price. The price appears, therefore, as external to and independent of the commodity, as well as existing in it ideally. If the commodity cannot be realized in money, it ceases to be capable of circulating, and its price becomes merely imaginary, just as originally the product which has become transformed into exchange value, if it is not really exchanged, ceases to be a product. The commodity requires not simply demand, but demand which can pay in money. Thus, if its price cannot be realized, if it cannot be transformed into money, the commodity appears as devalued, depriced. This is the first mention of devaluation and the idea of devaluation. And crises of devaluation and what they might be about. And it's sort of here. But it doesn't go very far with it. Now we're back here to a whole set of questions towards the end. Um, where he talks about the different forms and ways in which money gets used. There's an amusing comment on page 210 when he says, if a commodity A with the price of one pound is exchanged for one fake pound, and if this fake pound is again exchanged for commodity B, price one pound, then the fake pound has done absolutely the same service as if it had been genuine. There's a, a, a fascinating little piece by uh, uh, Baudelaire, which is made much of by uh, uh, Derrida, which is uh, the poet walking along with one of his companions and the companion sees a beggar and takes a franc or whatever it was and gives it to the beggar. And uh, Baudelaire kind of says, why, my God, you're being extremely generous. And the guy says, oh, don't worry, it's a fake coin. And Baudelaire is shocked and says, how could you do such a thing? A poor, poor person, you give a fake coin to a poor person. And the answer comes back and says, well, you know, just think how happy. He thinks he's got a real money. And for this time, 
he's, he's absolutely thrilled with his life. So what's wrong with giving a fake coin? Because it's brought great pleasure to the beggar. It's a very interesting kind of thing. Uh, it's in, in Derrida makes a lot of it in uh, his book. What's the title, title of the book? Anyone remember it? Um, anyway, it's a, a lot of it's about fakery of this kind. Typical, typical Derrida. Um, so uh, let me let me just. Um, talk about the various attributes of money, which she gets into around 214, 215, circulation. It has stepped outside it. This is a very, again, very important. It becomes something that stands alone. And this, and in this aspect, it already latently contains its quality as capital. Now we argued last week that, that you know, things are defined by their use, not by what their physical form is. Uh, money is not capital. But capital is money used in a certain way. So what Marx is doing here is to kind of say, well, in a capitalist society, there are going to be certain uses for money which are very, very critical. Um, I don't know what the time is, but I want to... Um, let me just stop here and see if there are any kind of questions. I want to go on to the next few pages because they're also very significant. Any kind of questions? I've been just going on and on and on. Yeah. You'll need a, you'll need a, the microphone. Thanks so much, David. I, my question is just earlier, you made an aside about the military expenditure. Mark's talking about, you know, society just kind of dropping, uh, you know, country dropping its capital off in the sea. Could you interpret that and say a little more what he's arguing? Because you said it's an interesting way to understand military expenditure. Is there any difference in his conjuncture and our own on that, or is it, you know, the same? Uh, is the question clear? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if if uh, there are capital surpluses, uh, one of the things that happens in a crisis is the devaluation of commodities and the devaluation of uh, housing values or whatever it is. So it's going to be devaluation of some kind. Uh, one of the things that uh, Marx does talk about is the way in which a capitalist society sets up uh, planned obsolescence as a form of devaluation. <laughs> that uh, new, new commodities come along, um, I mean new computers come and uh, new iPhones come, and so everything becomes, you devalue the old ones. So there's a, there's a process of devaluation going on all of the time. And one of the ways in which you can get immediate obsolescence is through military equipment. Because you're always wanting more sophisticated military equipment, and so the, fi the fighters that were there in the 1960s 
are outdated and then they're thrown away and uh, basically you build new ones. So there's a constant uh, uh, push for military superiority, uh, which absorbs a vast amount of capital at the same time as it devalues it. So there's a cycle of devaluation which goes on. And then, of course, if you actually use uh, the bombs and the equipment and they get destroyed in war, there's a massive devaluation that goes on that way. That's what I think he's, 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 he's saying here. You know, he's, not, he's not advanced a theory of devaluation in this, in this text. He's mentioned it. He's not talked about it, but uh, he clearly sees that, uh, in effect, you, if, you, know, you can just get rid of your surplus. If you've got surplus and you can't find a place to invest it, you destroy it. Uh, and in a crisis, typically a lot of capital gets destroyed. Uh, it can be destroyed in commodity form. Uh, you know, you, you burn all the coffee in Brazil or you, you know, do that kind of, kind of thing or, uh, you, uh, uh, just, you know, destroy urban environments and, 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 and the like. So, so the, there's this fair amount of destruction and what, uh, Schumpeter called creative destruction goes on with internal to capitalism. And military is obviously one area in which a lot of this goes on. So I think that's, uh, that, that's how I would uh, elaborate on it. But I don't, but Marx himself is just kind of saying, well, obviously there's a, there's a waste which goes on here and, um, it's just, it's not useful for anything. And how do you, how do you consume military equipment? Uh, well, you don't, unless you, unless you use it and use it for destructive purposes. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, David. Um, I have a, a a sp more speculative question, but it's that is related to something that is on page 122. Um, and uh, somewhere at the end of the first big paragraph that you say there, um, let me. So it says, uh, would large scale modern industry have become possible without this new financial institution, without the concentration of credit which it created? without the state revenues, which it created in antithesis to brown rent, without finance in antithesis to landed property, without the moneyed interest in antithesis to the landed interest, without these things, could have there been any stock companies and the thousand forms of circulating paper, which are as much as preconditions as a product of modern commerce and modern industry. Now, clearly, uh, Marx here is laying out uh, a very I mean, kind of like a list of the many apparatuses that have come out, you know, from this money relationship that he's planting here in capital. And I remember uh, very well in like in, in volume one and in, in, in the pieces where he's also trying to trace some kind of feudal sort of relationships. Right. And so there's a very different money relationship in feudal society, as it's always explaining here is a very specific money relationship and money capital. Right. Which is relates to this that produced this. Now, now here comes a speculative question. Um, in, in most of the, the advances of thought of like future societies, communist societies, socialist societies, whatever we want to call a future society, um, a the concept of money 
uh, is always very antagonic, right? I mean, in one aspect, it says when money is to be obliterated, that would be more like a static form that I would recall to Thomas More's Utopias or something, you know, that goes into that front, right? But in other cases, which we have much more elaborate utopias, the, the money relationship still exists. And that means that the money relationship contradiction that Marx is here teaching us continues to exist. But there's the, what it changes is the production, right? The, the, social, the social aspect or the, the production factor that it's not so much emphasizing the surplus and you know, all these things that he actually mentions in here. And so the speculative question is, what is your take on the money relationship in a society that is not capitalist? Oh, thank you for that. Easy. <laughs> Frequently, the only way to answer a question is to question the question, and <laughs> etc. No. Um, <clears throat> Well, first off, about, about this passage, by the way, I, I think it's important to recognize that this is not Marx's argument. This is Proudhon's argument, and Marx doesn't agree with it. I mean, at the bottom of the page, he's saying, actually, it's the other way around, that all of these in institutions came out of the transformative process. Um, I, the, what, the, what the role of the money is in the future ter term is at various points I give you what I think Marx's main agenda is it is indeed uh, to abolish exchange value um, and find communal ways in which to render the use values which are necessary for people to live adequately and well with plenty of free time and all the rest of it uh, which means also abolishing value and the law of value. Now, he's very explicit, I think, about that in various cases, that at a certain point. Now, how do you get to the point where you can organize production uh, in such a way that the amount of time which is necessary for the reproduction uh, society is down to a very low level uh, and the rest of the time people do what they like and they can barter or they can do whatever. In other words, the monetary forms starts to disappear. Uh, so I think that Marx does not actually argue that in the, in the long run there may not be a monetary form which is like the sort that Proudhon, etc., is arguing for. In fact, there are certain passages where Marx kind of says, "I think I think it would be a good idea that 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 if there's an exchange between you and I, you work much faster than I do on all kinds of things, and so, but we don't have to kind of take that into account. We just you know you've got something I want, and I want you know something, so we can exchange." And, and exchange structures could be set up uh, of that sort, which don't, which don't involve some, some monetary form. And there, there comes this question, which uh, is that, is there a monetary form uh, which is it's possible to construct, 
which is outside of uh, accumulation. So it's all of that. And in fact, some of this, these questions taken up in the next few pages here, which I do want to talk about uh, in, relation, in relationship to, to, to that question. Um, I just joined today the seminar, so I couldn't read all the text. Uh, please apologize if I'm not so precise. Uh, I come from Switzerland. I, I follow the anthropology in anthropology, so anymore about anti-capitalism, and we looked at some questions of exchange and money, and we looked at also models like, well, you know, real. Uh, society or oh, communities who try to find new models. So one model was uh, the time model, which is that one hour is exchanged to another hour, uh, regardless what kind of work it is. So that I think that's a community in in Austria who is practic well, he's yeah, really yeah, trying yeah, well, that. Yeah, we have we have that one in New York too. Oh, it's time time so, sharing. Okay, I didn't. So know, that, yeah. Yes, okay. I mean, yeah, no. Good, that's yeah. interesting. Well, I was wondering, maybe you can help me with the morality question and of maybe how Marx is relating to morality and social responsibility. Because that's the question I don't grab so good. Okay. Well, actually, that's what comes up in the next section. So why don't I go on to the next section? Okay. No, I mean, it's... it's um, Okay, I suggested that you go ahead and read uh, some of these pages uh, on from uh, in the chapter on on money, um, and uh, this is precisely the point where Marx does switch uh, his focus of attention. He says, uh, uh, "In money, the price is realized, and its substance is wealth." Now, Marx. Distinct. This is uh, this is page two hundred twenty-one, the opening of the chapter on money, continuation, two hundred twenty-one. The, the substance is wealth. Now, wealth in Marx is different from value, and you should always keep them distinct. Wealth itself, considered in its totality, in abstraction from its particular modes of existence. Exchange value forms the substance of money, and exchange value is wealth. Money is therefore, on another side, also the embodied form of wealth. Okay. In contrast to all the substances of which wealth consists. Thus, in the first role, money is wealth itself. In the other, it is the general material representative of wealth. This totality exists in money itself as a comprehensive representation of commodities. Thus, wealth, exchange value as totality as well as abstraction, exists, individualized as such to the exclusion of all other commodities as a singular, tangible object in gold and silver. Money is therefore the god among commodities. Since it is an individuated, tangible object, money may be randomly searched for, found, stolen, discovered, and thus general wealth may be tangibly brought into the possession of a particular individual. 
from its servile role, and which appears as mere medium of circulation, it suddenly changes into the Lord and God of the world of commodities. The language here is completely different. It's really about the anthropology, the psychology that's attached to the money fetish and what that means. It represents, he says, the divine existence of commodities while they represent its earthly form. Before it is replaced by exchange value, every form of natural wealth presupposes an essential relation between the individual and the objects in which the individual in one of his aspects objectifies himself in the thing. Money, on 222, however, as the individual of general wealth is something emerging from circulation and representing a general quality. That is, this system is generating money and wealth. And wealth is being taken over by people, and wealth starts to become the aim and object, the fetish object. which gives the person at the same time by virtue of the thing's character a general power over society, over the whole world of gratifications, labors, etc. It is exactly as if, for example, the chance discovery of a stone gave me mastery over all the sciences, regardless of my individuality. This goes back to the economic and philosophic manuscripts where Marx has this thing about money. He kind of says, you know, uh, I am ugly, but I can. Uh, but if I have money, I can buy beautiful women, so I don't appear ugly anymore. I'm stupid, but I can buy intelligent men, so I, I appear, don't appear stupid anymore. You know, I'm. I, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, I'm unathletic, but I can hire. You know, I mean, it goes on and on like this, and kind of says, uh, it's 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 the, the the whole kind of thing about the world of gratifications. Uh, and what can be done with uh, money as an independent source. And therefore, money is therefore not only an object, but is the object of greed. It is essentially, ori sacra famis, greed as such as a particular form of drive as distinct from the craving for a particular kind of wealth, for clothes, weapons, jewels, women, wine, etc., is possible only when general wealth, wealth as such, has become individualized in a particular thing. And then he goes on to talk about the way in which money is the source of all evil. And, and of course, if you take the Freudian thing, it's uh, equivalent to, to shit. And uh, Freud took the view that uh, you know, bourgeois exchange was sublimated rituals of the anus, he called them. So this, this is kind of the root of all evil, you know, so that money suddenly takes on this character, which is, is, has a, a psychological, uh, and, and uh, therefore the lust for money and the lust after gold, uh, and, and, and develops this role, uh, and, and actually ends up uh, leading to the decay of communal bonds. So Marx talks here about the dissolution of uh, the community and how money becomes the community. Money necessarily appears in its third role, and the further it develops in that role, the more the decay of their community advances. On the top of 223, it is itself the community, and can tolerate none other standing above it. 
but this presupposes the full development of exchange values, hence a corresponding organization of society. In antiquity, exchange value was not the nexus rerum. It appears as such only among the mercantile peoples, who had, however, no more than a carrying trade and did not themselves produce. So money dissolves the society and becomes the society. And Marx goes on to talk on 224 about the general mania for money becoming the wellspring of general self-reproducing wealth. And then the bottom of 224 is very explicit, where money is not itself the community. It must dissolve the community. And then he talks about in, in how this happened in antiquity. And, and, and then it is inherent in the attribute in which it here becomes developed, and this is on 225, that the illusion about its nature the fixed insistence on one of its aspects in the abstract and the blindness towards the contradictions contained within it gives it a really magical significance behind the backs of individuals. In fact, it is because of this self-contradictory and hence illusory aspect, because of this abstraction, that it becomes such an enormous instrument in the real development of the forces of social production. That is, you know, while he's critiquing Proudhon for his way in which he set up this kind of fetish concentration on money capital, Marx is now saying there is something going on there within that kind of formation of the money and what the monetary calculus is all about and the greed for money and all of that, which is in fact profoundly destructive of all other forms of, 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 of ties and, and, and the like. Money thereby directly and simultaneously becomes the real community, since it is the general substance of survival for all, and at the same time the social product of all. But as we have seen in money, the community is at the same time a mere abstraction, a mere external accidental thing for the individual, and at the same time merely a means for his satisfaction as an isolated individual. So this is a, a shift to say that, that money has these qualities. And to the degree that it has these qualities, it is profoundly disruptive of other forms of communal bonding. And it becomes an aim and object of everything. I mean, I always remember sitting down with some undergraduates a few years ago and asking them what they wanted to do after they got their degrees and one kid sort of just said well I just want to earn some money and have a good life and everybody agreed and I kind of I was shocked <laughs> but but actually I bet you if you took a, a, a class of, of undergraduates right now and asked them basically what their ambitions were in life it would be simply to to get a job with enough money so that you could have a you know, reasonable, reasonable existence, and that was it. I mean, nobody wants to change the world, and nobody wants to do, you know, well, maybe they want to be Bernie supporters or something, I don't know. But, but, but the, the, the monetary side is, 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 is incredible. And, and I, there are, however, forms of money which, which, which I think are, are interesting to look at, and um, Keynes is very interesting on money. 
uh, and I've always I always like this this thing where he talks about this. So this is from Keynes, and uh, this sort of thing that you know, if you go to the appendices of the general theory of Keynes, you'll find all kinds of interesting stuff about monetary experiments with oxidizable money in in Austria in the 1930s, 1940s. By oxidizable, I mean uh, it had a negative interest rate, and, and then actually we've now got negative interest rates where actually the value of money disappears. And a, 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 an oxidizable thing was, you, if you had a hundred dollar bill or something like that, at the end it only it was only valid for a month. And if you didn't spend it in a month, when you went to renew it, you had to pay to renew the hundred dollar bill. In other words, you had to pay ten dollars to renew the hundred dollar bill. So, so this is a way of kind of being anti-accumulation. Uh, with the money. Um, and this is what Keynes said in the general theory at the back. Uh, when the accumulation of wealth is no longer of high social importance, there will be great changes in the code of morals, which comes back to, to your question about morals. We shall be able to rid ourselves of many of the pseudo-moral principles which have hag-ridden us for 200 years, by which we have exalted some of the most distasteful of human qualities into the position of the highest virtues. We shall be able to afford to dare to assess the money motive at its true value. The love of money as a possession, as distinguished from the love of money as a means to the enjoyments and realities of life, will be recognized for what it is, a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one hands over with a shudder to the specialists in mental disease. All kinds of social customs and economic practices affecting the distribution of wealth and of economic rewards and penalties, which we now maintain at all costs, however distasteful and unjust they may be in themselves, because they are tremendously useful in promoting accumulation of capital, we shall then be free at last to discard. Now this is Cain. This is not Marx, but I think this is the kind of sentiment that is very much in these passages which Marx is talking about here, which is that the monetary calculus is an abstraction. It actually imprisons individualism, but it is also an abstraction which has uh, consequences for modes of thinking and major modes of consciousness and modes of life and modes, modes of moral judgment which, as, as, as Keynes kind of said, for 200 years uh, have exalted some of the most distasteful of human qualities into the position of the highest virtues. And you go read a, you go read a, a version of, of Person of the Month in Forbes magazine or one of the big things, and you'll see that these people are, you know, are praised for doing these incredible things. And you look at it and say, well, this is absolutely totally disgusting. But somehow or other, that is the, the, the moral tenor. And I think what Marx is doing here is to recognize that, that, that there's that, that angle. But that's not hard because, you know, money has always been problematic socially and morally. Uh, how, religious, uh, has, how a religious society has responded to it varies uh, quite a lot. So I think it's a it, it's an it's an interesting interesting way to go. Well, we should stop around here now. Next time we're not going to read quite so much, I promise. Um, we need to read, I think, two three nine to three o four something like that. 
I think that's on the list. Has anybody got the list there? Hmm? 239 to 304. So we'll take that up next next time. Okay? Thank you. <laughs>